2: Hello! Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Max Linsky, and I'm here uh, with just one co-host, Evan Ratliff. How are you,
3: sir? I'm doing well. How are you, Max?
2: I'm doing great, man. I had a really good morning. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. I don't, we don't need to go into it, but I can tell you that uh, a good thing happened to me this morning. Well, that's exciting to hear. I'm glad to hear that. A thing I've been waiting for for some time came to pass.
3: <laughs> you, you're, we don't have to talk about it, but now you're setting it up like in a future episode, it'll be revealed. Which maybe it will. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But Keep right listening, now, everyone. I know that this
2: thing happened, and uh, I'm deliriously happy about it.
3: Another thing happened. You taped an episode of this show. Who was it with? It was with Gia Tolentino, who is the deputy
2: editor at Jezebel. Uh, Gia and I went to Pittsburgh, and we taped an episode in front of the uh, fine people at Pitt Writers, the writing department at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, with whom we have been. Partners for a long it's time, support of the show,
3: from, yeah, from the very early, they've beginnings. been amazing
2: to us, and um, and we've had some really great conversations there uh, in the past, but they've always been with like really established magazine writers, longtime magazine writers, and so I thought it would be cool to bring Gia there because she went to an MFA program and somehow navigated like the world of writing on the internet afterwards, mm. and uh, so we had a really good conversation about how you do that. Uh, it's just not easy. Is the answer. Uh, but she was great. All right. What about sponsors this week? MailChimp sponsoring this week's episode. I know them. They are, uh, man, have they been good to us, MailChimp. Has anyone been better to us than MailChimp? In our whole lives, probably not. <laughs> I say no. I say no, except for what happened to me this morning. <laughs> uh, MailChimp is used by more than 8 million businesses to send email. Uh, Longform uses it. The Atavist uses it. 8 million other businesses use it. You should, too. Thank you, MailChimp.
3: I also wanted to plug something this week, Max. Get shameless, man. This is this is doubly shameless because it's a new story from the Atavist magazine. Also, I wrote it. Yes, you uh, did. So I would be remiss in not plugging it, but also feels weird to plug it. But basically, it's a story. Uh, it's called The Mastermind. It's a seven-part series that we're doing. This is the first part that's up this week on Thursday. It's uh, at mastermind.atavist.com. And it's about uh, this uh, criminal, global criminal named... Paul LaRue, who's been uh, held in secrecy by the U.S. government for three and a half years almost. And previous to that was a computer programmer who turned into the head of a global arms and drug cartel.
2: I'm just going to say this because you won't say it. This story is fucking incredible. Evan will not say that the story is fucking incredible. The story is fucking incredible.
3: And now here's Max (laughs) with Gia Tolentino. Well, hey, Gia. Hi. Welcome
2: to um, the podcast and also to Pittsburgh.
0: Thank you for having me, and thank you for having me Pittsburgh.
2: It's very nice to be with you in Pittsburgh. This is the um, fourth live podcast that we've done with our friends at Pitt Writers at the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, it is the first time that we've talked to someone who had not like been in this industry for like... I old,
0: old, I know you're going to uh, yeah, say it. <laughs> yeah, not,
2: not a, uh, a uh, white man of advanced years. I'm not that. <laughs> and, um, and part of the reason I wanted to talk to you here in particular is because we didn't talk about the experience of going through a program like this mm-hmm. in this day and age and then like trying to figure out um, how to get a job, mm-hmm. how to get paid to be a writer. And uh, you figured out... I did. How to get an MFA and then get paid to be a writer. I did. So I want to talk about that. And I think my first question is, was your MFA worth it?
0: Well, worth it is a relative term because I didn't pay for it and I got a stipend. So of course it was worth it.
2: <laughs> because you got paid to get an MFA. Because I got
0: paid for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which I think, you know, I mean, I was I was doing my research on this program and, you know, like the any program that prioritizes funding. I went to undergrad at the University of Virginia, which has a really good creative writing program and an MFA program. And I was well acquainted enough with it to be skeptical, <laughs> and I sort of ended up in the MFA by accident just by I was writing some stuff when I got back from the Peace Corps, and I didn't know if it was good, and I figured one way to see if it was good would be to apply to programs and see if anyone took me And once I got into the program, it was sort of immediately apparent to me that the the purpose of it wouldn't be, you know, here's the two years in which I will groom myself into the next American novel writer, but here, are two years in which I'll have a considerable amount of time to write um, on my own time without supervision on what I want, and I knew then that that was a rare opportunity. Even though now working, it seems even more precious than it did to me then. <laughs> uh, but it was it was great, and I I just shelved a, no- a novel that I wrote during my MFA, and I think a writing program like having a having a space to figure out the range of what you can do, like working with different people, editing and being edited by different people in a way that's not immediately tied to your immediate monetary compensation is really useful. And it was, it was great for me, but you know, I approached the program from a really pragmatic standpoint, which is what I've always said to people who are like, should I get an MFA? And it's like, yeah, sure. If, if it works for you and if you're careful.
2: (laughs) So you approached it with a very pragmatic take and, and yet the work that you did there, you just put on a shelf.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I also started working part time at the Hairpin while I was in the MFA. Um, there was something—I mean, Michigan's program. I went to the University of Michigan. They have an amazing program. They are so generous to people. I mean, I only went to six hours of class a week my first year, and I That's within like
2: barely school.
0: I know, <laughs> I know, which is why I got a fucking part-time job (laughs) because I couldn't I mean I couldn't stand it I can't you can only I was in a fiction program you can only write fiction for three hours a day before you go insane and so I started freelancing which is how I got the job at the hairpin it was still so useful as a writer and as an editor that I don't at all regret shelving the book wow
2: I'm proud of you why I just feel like I, I like uh you know like uh Lose a pair of pants in the closet for a while, I, like feel bad about it. So,
0: yeah, <laughs> I feel like you know the next. If I write a book again, it'll be that much better. I, you know, I, I mean, you know, part of the thing of writing on the internet. I'm so sick of my own self anyway <laughs> that there is nothing about me that was like, yeah, I need to have a book. I need a, you know, publicity hump for a year and a half, and you know.
2: <laughs> when you were in the MFA and you started freelancing, did you know what kind of work you wanted to be doing? Because it's interesting to think about, like if you didn't totally need the money, like that's actually a pretty nice place to start thinking about what kind of writing you'd want to be doing.
0: In general, I think everything that I've done, everything that I've tried to write, I mean, the book applies here too, is just like me trying to see if I could do it, me like trying. And at that time I had never, I had ghostwritten a couple of books actually before the MFA. They're awful. (laughs) What did you ghostwrite? One of them was a Christian motivational memoir for women. (laughs) (laughs) And another one was like a, a book about real estate. And so I, I went to the MFA just to be like, could I write a decent book? And then I wrote a book and I was like, well, maybe I want to try to write a really good one. And then I shelved it and that was it. And with the when I started freelancing, it was just me, you know, reading stuff online and being like, can I do this? And then trying and then realizing that I could. And then when I got approached for the job, being like, could I do this as a job? And then realizing that I could. And now I'm here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> were there moments that you remember in that process? Like, was there something you wrote while you were at Michigan where you were like, oh, okay, like, uh, this, is, this is something I could do?
0: I started writing for the All Family, and I started writing stuff for the Billfold, and I started interviewing adult virgins for the Hairpin, which was um, where I eventually started working. And Starting
2: your like uh, long career of uh, interviewing people with like strange <laughs> sexual histories. Did you read the dolphin thing? I did read the dolphin thing. Yes.
0: <laughs> I interviewed a guy that uh, yeah the dolphin, yeah, fucks dolphin fucker. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, he was. It was very. It's. It's not. It's much sadder than it seems. Right.
2: And dolphin fucking seems pretty sad.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's sad. Yes. Wet Goddess. He was a really sweet man, though. That was the name of his book. Yeah. One thing that I enjoyed during the MFA, one thing that I found a really useful counterpoint to this whole process of, you know, you write something and you revise it 7 million times and it takes, you know, for a book, it's a five-year process, you know, pretty much. And the idea that I could do something in one day, edit it the next day, and then it would be up the day after that, When I was in the program, I wasn't sure that I could be a writer for a living. And that was very, very useful to me, more than the specifics of what I was doing, because it was just still trying one thing on and then the next thing. But that, to me, was the thing that I grabbed onto, that as a complete counterpoint to the book churn cycle, where it's so long between things.
2: Just the immediate reaction of stuff you were putting out there? And
0: not even the reaction, but just the knowledge that you could do something and it doesn't have to be perfect and it's still good enough. Mm -hmm. that people would read it and that sometimes belaboring something isn't necessarily good for the work. As a writer, I kind of have a tendency to be over particular, like over fussy and little flowery. And I successfully trained that out by writing on the internet.
2: That must've been a pretty, like, I imagine I didn't get an MFA, but I imagine that was like a pretty stark contrast to like your workshops.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. You would spend two hours discussing, you know, I mean, which is great. And again, that's why I'm really grateful for the MFA, because that's something that I miss. I think it's, you know, on the other end, it's rare that you work with people or I mean, in the blog world, let's say not in because I'm still very much in blogs and not in magazine features or anything. But it's rare that you will be able to sit down with a writer or an editor that will line edit you as well as most of my classmates did in the mfa that will really sit down and talk to you about the heart of something and like be willing to get at the depths of some depth of something that has nothing to do with its potential reception Mm -hmm. i think that's one of the main reasons that i got better um through the program
2: so once you started writing for the internet more, started to get a feel for it and, and realized that like that was something you could do. How did you make the jump from... I mean, I feel like there's probably a lot of people in this room and certainly a lot of people listening who like are writing pieces for uh, not very much money for like a variety of websites and trying to figure out how to take that and move it into like a thing that can actually pay the rent and be something they can plan around. How did you make that leap?
0: I will say that, I mean, I will credit all of me being able to make that leap to Emma Carmichael, who um, cold called me or cold emailed me out of nowhere in the middle between my first and second years of grad school. And she was taking over the hairpin from Edith Edith Zimmerman and said, would you be interested in coming on? And I said, yeah. And so (laughs) I credit me being able to do to do this part time and now full time is immense it's largely due to her (laughs) but I started to be aware when I was interviewing virgins and you know for obvious reasons people love to read about sex people love to read about weird sex stuff but I mean I also think that the all network is it fosters writers that that like have a very distinct interest and sensibility and I sense that working with those editors and I think I understood that with say the Virgin things as an example, there weren't people writing about sex like that in a way that wasn't sexy. And so I think I part of what Emma may have been interested in maybe was the fact that I was kind of burrowing into something that people weren't doing. Mm -hmm. There's so much shit being published online constantly every day, but there's a massive shortage of people that are writing stuff that's, you know, truly kind of good-natured and original and sharp and consistent.
2: You went to the Peace Corps, like, right after college. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about, like, what it was like to be in Kyrgyzstan, but also how, what impact that had on the stuff that we're talking about.
0: Kyrgyzstan was crazy. I, seven days after I got there, the country kind of erupted in a civil revolution. That was the second one they had had in five years. And we got, we got evacuated to the Air Force Base where all, um, missions, Air Force missions to Afghanistan are staged from and nobody could leave the country. And so we were cooped up on this Air Force base base with all these people that were coming off of two year missions. And that was my first week. <laughs> and so it was intense. And I also happened to look very Kyrgyz and the the language I picked it up pretty quickly
2: what's the language called? It's Kyrgyz, it's Kyrgyz. and it's, it's you, a, you just picked up Kyrgyz.
0: Well, it's actually very, I mean, <laughs> we had amazing language trainers and you know, nobody spoke English for an hour radius around me. I had to learn it or else I wouldn't be able to talk to anybody. And it's also a really unique language. There aren't any synonyms. There's no future tense. It, it was, it was an interesting thing to learn. Anyway, it was a crazy, I lived in this beautiful, crazy little mountain village. Um, far away from anything and it was great and all i did was read and write and i think it underscored the fact that you know left to my own devices i always will write it's compulsive it always has been since i was a kid it's it was then and continued to be
2: so that's kind of always what you wanted to do
0: yeah it's always what i wanted to do i think i mean i graduated in 2009 you know right in the dip of the recession i had no connections you know no money to move to new york and try it so i was like I, you know, I'll be, I'll, you know, write grants for a nonprofit maybe, you right. know, like I was sort of assuming that I wouldn't be able to, cause it was my understanding of me in college from 2005 to 2009 that writing was not accessible.
2: Um, uh, let's talk about what you do now. Okay. You're the deputy editor. You were the features editor features at some point. Features editor, yeah. And, and then you got, that's a, just a, is that like a promotion? Did you get a promotion? Yes. Did your, like, did your job change? Well,
0: what it means is I have less time to edit features.
2: (laughs) (laughs) How much of your time are you editing and how much of your time are you writing?
0: It ends up being a pretty solid 50, 50, 60, 40 um, editing to writing mix. Mm
2: -hmm. And how do you decide when something is worth writing about? Like, when do you decide, all right, this thing is in the air and I have something to say about it or... um, You know, you went down to UVA and and reported sort of in the aftermath of the Rolling Stone piece. Like, when does something, how do you know that something has reached the level where it's like, all right, I'm going to take a couple of days or I'm going to carve this afternoon out and and try and put something down?
0: I'm kind of against opinion. (laughs) I've developed like an anti-opinion stance. And when I have one, then I want to write. You know, when I have one, then I kind of know it's worth So you're anti-opinion
2: unless it's your opinion.
0: I'm anti-opinion unless it's an opinion that, you know, I feel like is unique enough to write about or just yeah i mean my anti-opinion stance has strengthened my filter for like when something when i actually want to write about something mm-hmm. um then i just do and and the good thing about the jobs i've had is that i can you know um just write about this things. the uva thing you know of course that was i had gone to undergrad there and it was dri- the whole thing was just driving me nuts
2: when you read the story initially did it sound like bullshit to you
0: you know, having been in the Greek system, being a woman, you know, like writing, a, writing about sexual assault all, this, all the time. The thing that drove me nuts about that story was somebody looking for an exception and then trying to pretend it was the norm. And that was pretty obvious to me with the anecdotal stuff she was bringing in about UVA, even mm. beyond the central narrative, which was exactly that, you know, a, an exception that she was trying to be like, this is what it's like for, you right. know, for everybody.
2: I feel like people are trying to draw grand, holistic conclusions and truths out of isolated events, yeah, seems like a pretty consistent theme of uh, something that pisses you off.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, does it?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, just like like I, I just reread uh, that essay you wrote in December called "No Offense," uh-huh. which is about like out kind of outrage culture on yeah. the internet. And I mean, basically, what I understood you to be saying was nothing is as simple as people seem to want it to be.
0: I understand what you're saying. And I think that for me, it's like I get like this with identity politics and with sexual assault coverage. It's like these ideas are too important to treat this broadly.
2: It seems like you and Emma with Jezebel have carved out this kind of interesting place. Like when feminism news hits, you have this choice to make about whether or not you're going to respond or how you're going to respond. And the site itself has some sort of like role in that conversation. It's almost like Jezebel like needs to weigh in on whatever this might be. And I wondered whether you feel that way about whatever the same version of that is for Asian American stuff.
0: No, I mean, I write about race a lot, but I write about it when I want to and not because I'm like, oh, let me fulfill the duty because I'm Asian and work here and can. But it's funny though. I mean, because you wouldn't, if you were talking to say Emma, you wouldn't be like, you know, you don't feel the need to weigh in on, on whiteness. Stuff. Well, I,
2: I, that's a very fair point, And I will cop to asking you that question because I talked to Jay Kang like 15 minutes before this. Oh, really? And I was like, I'm about to interview Gia. Do you have any questions that you would like to ask Gia? Uh-huh. And that was, that was his question.
0: Well, he and I talk about this sometimes. I mean, the thing he just wrote about the Peter Liang yeah. protest was so, was so, so, so good.
2: Well, I think he, I mean, whatever. That's a, kind of a cop-out to say, like, that was Jay's question. Uh-huh. But... It was Jay's question, uh-huh. and I think the reason he <laughs> the reason he was asking it was because he, I think, he was trying to figure that out for himself too. Is like when this shit comes up, do you weigh in or not?
0: I've also never been put in the position because I like have only worked with good editors who don't do the you know cheap like who do I know that's it? you know like right. I've never I, like I've never been a party to you know what you could call sort of like spreadsheet diversity um, someone trying to, you know, be like, who, who could we get that could write about being Asian? You know, I have been lucky enough to not, to be able to offer that opinion when I feel like my identity is relevant, which it is sometimes. And sometimes it's not, I grew up in Texas, um, in a 98% white zip code.
2: How do you know when you've got something to say?
0: Um, I feel like it's like that obscenity thing, you know it when you, I mean, I I have no, I have no critical thinking about this. (laughs) I have never consciously made a decision to write about something. (laughs) Like like, I've never, it's actually, I mean, now I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to decide to do something. I mean, I can't develop a thought unless I write it down. Like I can have a thought, but I can't think about the thought unless it's verbalized in front of me. But then once I write it down, I never have to think about it again. Or I never can think about it again. And so writing is like sort of a clearinghouse to get my brain to the space where I like it to be, which is totally empty. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I think so, you know, when something is that pressing and like when I have an idea that it's like I need to I have another thought about this, but I can't see it until I write about it. And then I write about it and then I can see the thought and then the thought's gone forever.
4: That
2: sounds so appealing to me. It's very I have the, good. Like, the reverse process, which is like to have a thought and then just harp on it for like decades.
0: Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think it would be like that for me. I mean, I think that's part of the reason I've always been a compulsive writer ever since I was really, really little. Because I, um, I prefer my brain to be empty of thoughts. And, and that's, it's, it's a nice way to go about life. And it's nice to be able to process things and then move. And I can't do it. I can't do it um, in my head at all. I have to externalize the process.
2: So basically what you're describing is like uh, like zen in the art of blogging. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> it's my, it's my, maybe my, the corniest <laughs> thing I've ever my, said on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so even as you have like progressed from freelancing in Ann Arbor to like moving to New York and having this job at Jezebel and not just writing, but being one of the people who is deciding who else is going to be writing, like all of that has just been... Sort of like one foot in front of the other, like one idea down. I really
0: credit and blame Emma for this because she, I mean, she, she hired me the hairpin that she took me with her when she, so I, I mean, I have this job because she brought me. Like she literally picked me up and took me. So it's not that I have stumbled into it, but that is how it's felt. I have not, I guess it sort of felt like if this opportunity is open, why would I try that? Why would I swerve from this? Let me see how long I can do this. I'm not one for strategy at all, um, for better or for worse. I have never had one about anything. It's been something that I've been trying consciously to get better at as an editor to have kind of more of a bird's eye view of, you know, cause I feel like you do need strategy as an editor <laughs> <laughs> and I've been trying to get it, you know, I've tried, I've been trying to be more conscious about that. How's that going? I think it's going good. <laughs> good. Yeah.
2: <laughs> like uh, thoughts are sting- sticking around for a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it hard at all for you to go from editing to writing? Is Is that balance tricky?
0: I like it. When you're editing somebody good, it feels like you are writing without any of the the essential kind of spiritual difficulty, <laughs> you know, you get to, you get to get better at writing without having to write when you edit someone nice. And I love that feeling. And I really, I think I get a weird satisfaction out of editing. Um,
2: What's the weird satisfaction you get out of it?
0: I mean, I find it soothing. I find it, there's something really rewarding in making a piece clear.
2: Has, has the process of like finding new writers been fun for you? Yeah. Yeah. I imagine I'm like, not
0: great at it, but
2: where do you struggle?
0: The submissions inbox of both the hairpin and jezebel have you know are just um high volume, you know, and it's also it's true like the market is bad for I, I'm not sure. Sometimes I worry that, you know, people that would really want to write for us won't want to write for a blog fee, which is totally fair. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I I just I don't I also don't have a talent spotting instinct. That's as strong as I mean, for a strong piece of writing. Sure. But for like a you know a person, it's not necessarily as strong.
2: Do you spend like a lot of time like reading other sites and looking for names? Is that like part of your job?
0: Uh, I mean, I spend a lot of time reading other sites. Um,
2: but that's just like a waste time.
0: <laughs> no, I, it's not like we're like, you know, actively mm-hmm. talent scout, like hiring all the time. But yeah, I mean, I if I see somebody good, I email them and say, please write for me.
2: It's wild that you moved to New York two days before your first day, like in the Gawker offices. That mm-hmm. seems really intense to me.
0: It was kind of intense.
2: How intense has it been working for a site that has such a large and um, devoted (laughs) readership?
0: Well, in the same way that the All Network draws people that are, you know, have a really strong individual sensibility, like Gawker is, it attracts people that, for better or worse, really don't care about other people's opinions of them. And, you know, obviously the last, I enjoy that, but the last year has been maniacally strange (laughs) at Gawker. It was a weird first year to be in New York. It was a weird first year to have my first full-time job. It was a weird, there was, um, I'm talking about Emma so much, mom, (laughs) she, (laughs) um, you know, she got into a near fatal car accident over the summer and the, and the same month Gawker had that super public meltdown about the poster they outed, you know, that guy. And that all happened in one month. And then ever since then, you know, it's been, it was varying degrees of unstable for a while, Mm -hmm. but I think it was a good trial by fire.
2: Yeah. How did you navigate that?
0: Uh, You know, smoked a lot of weed. (laughs) 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 I don't know. I think I don't, I also don't, uh, there's something in my personality that is attracted to a slightly stressful situation.
2: Did you think about leaving?
0: I actually thought about leaving more when the internal memo with Emma's hospital room number got leaked to Jim Romanesco's website and posted. That disturbed me a lot more than the idea of somebody writing a post that outed somebody. Like we have a lot of assholes at Gawker. I like that. <laughs> I think that it serves a really valuable role in terms of you know, a shop of people that are willing to be combative. It comes with its obvious downsides, but it is, I think it's a really valuable thing to have in media as part of the landscape.
2: I think most people would agree with that, but I don't necessarily know that most people would be like, I want to be on team asshole. Sure. Like, why do you want to be on team asshole? I don't
0: need to be on team asshole though. You know, it's like, I need to, it's like with the MFA, it's like, you know, you're there and you're doing, you're taking the freedoms that it gives you for what it'll give you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like, I mean, the whole point of it is that you don't have to be on board with everything that everybody's doing at all. I mean, I certainly have never thought if, you know, if I work at Gawker, I have to, you know, love everything that Gawker does. I have to be okay with, you know, the degree to which that post affected my year. It's not, it's not that at all, but throughout it, it's I've still been more grateful for the freedom that being there gives me mm-hmm. and kind of the, the flexibility. I mean, I like about Gawker, like you can you write something that's really serious. You can also write something that's very, 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 very stupid. I don't think of it as like, I have to defend that, you know, every single decision that, but I'm, I'm still glad for what it will individually allow people that can run with the freedom that it gives, it, gives us.
2: How do you think that um, unionizing is going to change the place?
0: They, I mean, the bargaining process took 10 months and it was, uh, ex- extremely drawn out, but I mean, it's great. They've got a minimum salary floor of 50 K, uh, which is, you know, and, and a, a thing, I think one of the best provisions that I wasn't expecting was that uh, any permalancers after a year have to be hired to full time or you have to fire them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really, really, really good type of, cause there are a lot of companies that are running on permalance stuff. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably about time that, that professionalization and stability that's always been there informally is codified.
2: Let's talk about some more of your writing. Um, you wrote this essay for the New York Times Magazine in January, I think, about Cracker Barrel. Yeah. And it was like, uh, oh, did you Barrel. guys read that essay? It was great. And it was, uh, it was on like the most popular list for a long time. Oh, really? Come on now.
0: <laughs> what? <laughs> Come no, now. it wasn't.
2: I, there is no way that I know that and you don't know that.
0: Dude, I'm not trying to check. I spent all day staring at Chartbeat for Jezebel. There's no fucking way I'm I'm looking at.
2: <laughs> it was a very popular article. Thank you. I the, that's great the to readers know. I feel, I feel, I feel great. I feel great now. Yeah, it's a very well-known publication. Uh, many people enjoyed it. Uh, I fucking love
0: Cracker Barrel. Oh my God, I love it. I meant that piece from the bottom of my heart. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, there was a, like there was a lot going on in there, and um, it was a lot about your childhood. And you've written about like high school a lot. You went to a very religious school.
0: Very religious, second biggest mega church in the country. It was attached to it. I went there first through twelfth grade.
2: And you wrote this uh, great piece for. Uh, adult about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Do you say adult or is it adult? Adult. Uh, adult. Do you Adul- say adult? There's like, there's like <laughs> six words that um, people from Boston say differently. Mm. Like I say TV wrong mm. and clearly adult too. Um, anyway, Adult Magazine wrote this, this piece called Cheerleaders for Christ and both of those are fantastic and people should go read them. And it seemed to me like the Jezebel stuff is is often like somewhat of the moment. I mean like you know, dolphin fucking aside, like... It's, Timeless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Needs no peg,
0: <laughs> so to speak. <laughs>
2: <No>. <laughs> so Jezebel stuff is mostly like on the news or at least what's going on on the web. And it's interesting to me that in these places where you veer off and you do these essays for other sites, it seems to me like you're often going back and looking at that time in your life. And it made me wonder whether there was something you were still trying to figure out about that time. Because it seems to me like... Going from say, the second largest mega church in the country to dolphin fucking is like a a, um, a significant leap
0: <laughs> yeah, um, well, in general, I think that I am glad that I grew up in the you know all white conservative south like Enron, Texas, you know I because I think that it gave me a baseline understanding of how a certain group of the country lives that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I think it was like, it was a really good early training to just not be bothered, you know, (laughs) because it was such a weird environment. I mean, it was just deeply, deeply weird. My school, like we would have, like I wrote about in that Cheerleaders for Christ essay, I mean, I got my first purity ring when I was in fourth grade. You know, there were bodybuilders that were ripping off, ripping up phone books and then like pasting them to a cross like for Jesus it was just a deeply deeply strange environment and it persists in that like if I I was like grew up learning to be kind of um, unflappable about it that in a way that has carried on through you know this last year or whatever Um, but I don't really think too much about growing up unless you know there there is something that comes up that sticks in my mind that makes me think of a you know, some sort of unresolved. And there is probably, I mean, it is strange to me that that's how I grew up and it's so at odds with my values. And I went back, um, when I was reporting that UVA piece, I went back and read my diary from college and from high school just to sort of fact check what my experience, what my memory of my experience was to what I had written about it those days. And there is a long transition period between then and now, that I think I have forgotten about because I wrote about it so much privately. Mm -hmm. And so, but I don't think of it consciously as, you know, I have anything. I, like, I love Texas and I would never live there, but I love it.
2: What kicked you into that David Bowie story?
0: So Jezebel comes with, like, we will always get emails, which was part of why I wrote that piece in December. We'll get all these emails that are like, Aren't you aren't you mad you know like aren't you gonna write about how mad you are you know and we're all like we're not mad you know like we're literally not mad about this you know and and again that's one of those things it's to, it's the process of getting mad and forming an opinion like it really needs to be saved for when it really matters i think but so bowie was one of those incidents when he died you know we got all of these emails being like when's jezebel gonna write about how he was a rapist? It was a disservice to the way that women up till this point in history and still have been able to conceive of consent because there's no woman in America that hasn't grown up with this like deeply formative sense of coercion in her female identity and the way the way sex has been formulated for her. And to say, like, Lori Maddox didn't know what she was doing when she fucked David Bowie when she was a teenager. Like, he he raped her, and yet you have this woman who, at the age of 57, is like, it was the best night of my life. There was something that bothered me so much about the idea that, as I wrote, you know, you either have to write off David Bowie to support women, or you have to write off the woman and support Bowie. And to me, it just, it seemed like a total covering of of an idea that I thought was interesting and it took it took me a while to write about it
2: what do you mean by it was a total covering
0: it seemed like you know it was one of those things where the you know the the discursive marketplace of the internet was requiring that either you say you know here's why he was a rapist write him off because he's a rapist or write those women off because his legacy matters more it just like the intersection between those things is like where the real interesting fact of that of their encounter and all of the many similar encounters, um, lies. And it was like the internet are just stamping this big, like, you know, what are we going to label this in Mm -hmm. order to feel comfortable with it? And that bothered me. I mean, in general, that's like just a thing that gets at me. And, but I mean, you know, but that post was like, I was like, it was half of an aggregation of Rebecca Solnit's Facebook (laughs) comments. Like,
2: Well, but I, I mean, the reason I think people liked it, certainly the reason that I liked it is that, it feels rare to me that especially in a conversation about rape, the internet in particular, but people in general, uh, it's rare that that they're willing to go somewhere in the murky middle. Yeah, The extremes are a lot more comfortable.
0: Right. But it's one of those things, like I think, and this is a thing that I think multiple women who have written for Feminist sites have talked about on this podcast where it's one of those things where the internet is out of pace with r- real life discussion I mean, I guarantee you that, you know, anyone talking about like is, is David Bowie's death like I mean, I was at, all weekend at the bar, you know, everyone was like getting sad and we were talking about it and You know, when you talk to somebody in real life, they would have allowed for all of that murky stuff. And people would have started telling stories about, you know, this teacher in high school that they totally would have fucked if they could. And they're glad they didn't. But, you know, but they wanted to. And you would have had that discussion offline in a way that I think, you know, I really fervently want to believe that if the Internet is where we're all going to be writing now, then it has to be possible to talk about that on the Internet.
2: Do you think it's going to get to that place where where you can have... That nuanced a conversation, or at some point are you gonna are you gonna just like reach a point where you're like i i'm I'm done with this
0: maybe I don't know i'm not I have no strategy max <laughs> <laughs> I don't know
2: do you think that you will end up writing more or end up editing more, or will you try and keep on this track where you get to do both
0: i don't know i I think that I would like to try i it seems to me as if it would be harder to get a full-time writing job um, that would allow you to, to not news blog. <laughs> um, like, news blogging jobs are just, you know, they're a plenty right now. That That's, like, the real tip. Like, if you're willing to blog about the news, which is, you know, fun and taxing, um, those jobs are available to anyone coming out of a writing program. But um, probably people don't want to. <laughs> but I I think I would probably try to... The next thing I do, I'll try to write full time.
2: Do you know what you'd want to be writing about?
0: No, uh, no.
2: <laughs> It'll just come to you, and then you'll write it down, and then you'll forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. Thank Thanks for know. doing this. I appreciate it. Thank we you. Are. Are
4: very <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, you might assume that that is the end of the conversation, and uh, that's a fair assumption. We said goodbye and everything, but it is not actually. The end of the interview. I had a few more questions for Gia, so we sat down again a couple of days later, this time in the studio in Brooklyn. And the second part of our conversation is coming right up. Stay tuned. But first, I want to tell you quickly about a couple sponsors who are making today's show possible. First up is Squarespace, which is the thing to use if you are finally ready to put that website you've been meaning to build up on the internet. Maybe it's a personal site for your writing or your photography. Maybe it's something for your business. Maybe you're getting hitched and you want to have one of those beautiful wedding websites. Uh, maybe you own a restaurant and you want to put up the first half decent restaurant website in the history of restaurant websites. No matter what the site is, Squarespace is the easiest best way to get it done. You don't need to know a lick of code. Everything is drag and drop. And they've got these gorgeous templates that look totally pro and they work on any device, phone, tablet, computer, whatever. Squarespace stuff just works. If you do hit a snag, if you have any questions, they got 24 seven online support. And the best of all, you can try it and you don't need to use a credit card or anything. There's no commitment. So go check out squarespace.com slash long Start building that site that you've been meaning to build. When you do sign up, Use the offer code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off, and you'll be showing your support for the show, which is a thing we appreciate. We also appreciate Squarespace, which has been supporting this show for a very long time. Thanks to them. Thanks also to our friends at Home Chef. Home Chef has a simple goal. They want to make it easy for you to make fantastic restaurant-quality meals in your home without having to do all the legwork of getting the ingredients and finding a recipe. They want to make it super simple so you don't have to do any of that work and you still get a fantastic home-cooked meal. Here's how it works. They send you all of the ingredients, fresh ingredients plus instructions to cook these beautiful restaurant-quality meals in under 30 minutes in your house. Here are a couple of things that you could cook. Rustic vegetarian tart with spinach, roasted red peppers, and goat cheese. How about a little uh, maple miso-glazed salmon? with Brussels sprouts and apple, or a Parisian bistro steak with creamy potatoes and green beans. I'm telling you, the food is delicious, and you can make it at home in under 30 minutes. They've got recipe cards with step-by-step instructions, making cooking accessible, and it helps you learn. You can do it with your kids. Gluten-free, vegetarian, low-cal, low-carb, they've got it all. And every meal is under 10 bucks. It's more affordable than going to the grocery store. So here's what you should do. Go to homeshefcom slash longform and use the code longform at checkout. You'll get 20 bucks off. It's time to rediscover home cooking. Check out Home Chef. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And here is the second part of that conversation with Gia. Uh, thanks to her for coming back and talking to me some more. Hi, here we are um, back in Brooklyn.
0: I feel less cracked out this time.
2: Uh huh. Yeah, we're, in, we're in the <laughs> studio, and I feel like we should just explain briefly why we're here, which is that after we finished that interview that people just listened to in uh, the Cathedral of Learning mm-hmm. at the University of Pittsburgh, <laughs> we went to a bar where it turns out I didn't know this, but you can you can drink for like many hours on end, not even like well shit, good stuff. And it's like $7.
0: Less. Yeah, $6. dollars
2: six fifty. Yeah. And so you and I spent uh, quite a bit of time drinking for basically free uh, at this bar. And it was really interesting. We had a really good time. We got into some things that we had not talked about in the interview. And we were like, you know what? Tomorrow morning, let's just uh, wake up and we'll just like tape like a little addendum for the podcast. We'll get into some of this stuff that we're talking about. And then... Um, I woke up in the morning and I was so deeply hungover that the idea of like sitting down and talking was impossible.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, uh, it would have been so bad. I mean, it would have been <laughs> worth recording just for how, how bad it would have been. Yeah. I feel
2: like um, you and I would have like both sounded like 20 or 25 years older than we had the oh, night before. Oh, yeah.
0: I mean, I was like in my sweatpants and my beanie pulled over my eyes. Like, <laughs>
2: yeah. all I could think about was like egg and cheese. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we're going to try and do it now. And um, uh, we'll, we'll make this quick, but but it was really interesting to sit and talk with you in it that It was bar. a great hang. It was a great hang. And one of the things that came up was money and uh, what you guys paid Jezebel and what you paid at the hairpin. And you like kept saying while you were talking about it, like, we should have talked about this in the thing.
0: <laughs> I was drunk, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, well, what do you want to know?
2: Well, a consistent thing that we hear about the show is people want concrete numbers. So sure. one question is, what do you you are like the deputy editor of Jezebel, you were the features editor before that. You were commissioning and paying for stories. What do you guys pay for a feature at Jezebel?
0: Well, it's our budget is has changed, but I would say it averages around twelve uh twelve fifty, god I wish. <laughs> it averages around two fifty. And I try to do a I've started trying to give a flat two fifty, mm-hmm. which is okay. I but I think it's it's not worse than a lot of places. Mm-hmm. I, I just always wish, especially when people are writing about sensitive stuff or they're doing a lot of reporting, I wish that there was a little more wiggle room to bump people up, but it's not a Gawker specific thing. It's, you know, I've re- like in the last year of freelancing, I've, you know, come to realize that the rate isn't, that that's sort of the median. And I think it's a shame that um, especially companies that are, you know, flush with Well, I guess those companies that are flush with money tend to pay a little bit better. But I just wish rates were better Mm -hmm. across the board. It's also like the only thing. I mean, I wrote for the hairpin for free for a year before Emma hired me. It was when Emma hired me. It was the first time I'd ever gotten paid. And we started paying people. We didn't pay very much. And we didn't pay consistent rates. Um, And that was, again, due to just you know the all's run on a shoestring budget and we I think we both always wished we could pay more then and now it was it was nice to move to Jezebel and to be able to pay people more but I think as an editor like you just want you want to be able to pay people more
2: Are you apologetic when you're like, we can only we pay 250 bucks?
0: No, I try not to lead with an apology. (laughs) You know, I mean, in general, like I think. um, I'm just going to take a note here. That's pretty good advice. No, I mean, I have a hard time not doing that, especially it's, it's a thing about I think it's a specific thing about women's media, where at least for the hairpin, I think, you know, I even remember like when Edith did this podcast, I think she said something about like, you know, we try to have let people have fun and there's a degree to which like your personal relationship with your editors and writers like in my experience at the hairpin especially like it would be genuinely rewarding I never felt pressed probably thanks to the support of my MFA program I never felt pressed writing for free because I really enjoyed it and at the same time it's not fair to like you know for the idea be like I'm so fun to work with and I'll give them so many hours of editing work that it'll be worth their time. And I think that, you know, in general, like with, you know, there's like a, an over niceness that women get in any sort of professional dealings that I think in women's media specifically can come out in the form of, you know, I'm going to be super nice. I'm going to, you know, be so effusive. I'm going to spend so long on your edit. I'm going to make this rewarding, even though I can't pay you, you know, as much as I want to. Mm -hmm. And Anyway, so I try not to lead with an apology, but um, I do try to ensure that I, you know, I mean, I try to give people good edits so that they'll not be like, well, I just cranked that out and she put it up immediately, you know, and I got a check.
2: That general system, right? Like writing for free or writing for very little on the internet, I feel like is a pretty, you know, maligned idea. And people complain about it a lot. But it also seems like it, like, I mean, you are in a different situation because you were in this MFA program and you didn't super need the money at the time, but it worked out for you.
0: It worked out for me. Uh, like the
2: exposure thing worked.
0: Yeah, the exposure thing worked. You know? I think that's a, a good reason why. I mean, MFA programs are the ability, like the, the fact that someone will pay you for an open-ended thing as someone will pay you to write with an open-ended idea. Yeah. Um, that's valuable in a lot more ways than people think. I mean, it is valuable in a lot of other ways other than I'm going to end up with a book that I'm going to put on the market right afterwards. It's it, it teaches you what you're good at, kind of. And I think the ability to write for free kind of uh, taught me what my facilities were, like what came easier.
2: I guess now that you're on the other side, do you feel like it's working for people that you work with? Or no?
0: I think the degree to which I would... Call myself an exception is the degree to which I have patience with the pace of the internet um, in a way that most people that go to an MFA program, they're specifically going to that program because they don't want that. Mm -hmm. And I happen to have a temperament that can accommodate it. What does that mean? I don't mind the pace. I don't mind the the headache of it. I don't mind the comments. I don't mind the emails. I don't mind waking up with 95 new emails every day you know, Did you overnight. mind at
2: any point? Or was it like-
0: Like right when I started at both the Hairpin and Jezebel, I was a little shocked at the the tenor and volume um, of how people would get aggressive about your work. But you know, for better or worse, I got used to it really fast.
2: Another thing that uh, you mentioned after the interview, was um, that very awkward, regrettable moment where I asked you about um like whether or not you feel some um, responsibility to like weigh in on Asian American issues in the news. Slam J. I, and then immediately flame <laughs> Jay, which was legit and also still terrible. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I have an
0: answer for Like I said, yeah, I've yeah, an answer.
2: I, I, this is your opportunity to um, offer your answer.
0: Okay. And so this answer might come out badly because, like I also said in that interview, I, I, I thought of this answer this morning in the shower, and I have a hard time hanging on to more than one part of it at a time, but I have a real answer. All right. Okay. I'm ready. So the question was, do I feel pressure to weigh in on issues of Asian American identity? I, and I said— Something really awkward about disaffiliation, and no, <laughs> and but the, the so and
2: also why would you ask me that question, you asshole?
0: It's true. Well, okay, but here's here's my thing. So part of my instinctive bucking away from that is the fact that I know that I I've only been writing in public for like three years, and I have enjoyed this period of time where uh, like discourse is set up in a way where. The fact that, like, I am a woman and the fact that I am a minority, I've not had to lead with that. It can be folded into, like, I, I wrote about this in this uh, this thing about, like, the year of reading wokely. You know, there's like, people mm-hmm. are like, what I learned from a year not reading white men? It's like, oh, yeah, so, like, a lot of people's normal years, you know. <laughs> right. um, but I've, you know, been lucky enough to assume that these kind of, de- these identity descriptors can be folded into the default without pushback. And I haven't gotten pushback And, you know, this is a very narrow experience. I've only worked two places. But so there's that. I have that resistance to the whole thing. I think that women and uh, people of color that are writing can, it's possible for that to be, you know, kind of a default position and not always identified. I also like as much as it's been like a fundamental part of my identity, like to be female and to be a person of color, even though like I never say that in situations other than, you know, it's like that spreadsheet diversity feeling. But my experience is definitely being a non-white American. Like that's fundamental to how I've experienced life. But the way in which Asian figures into that is almost entirely um, a sense of privilege. Relative to other minority groups, Asians tend to face less discrimination. And so... And then, okay, so after the after you turn the mic off, I started talking to you about this D.T. Max piece in The New Yorker mm-hmm. about this guy who had the first ever case of having spinal surgery, and then he regains mobility from full paralysis below the hip or whatever. And there was this part we were talking about neurons, um, and he was saying that neurons respond to both opportunity and insult. And I thought of that as like a neat rephrasing of. When you get asked to write about identity things like being a woman or being a non-white person, um, especially by people that are not female or not minorities, you get asked to write about the insult. You never get asked to write about the opportunity. And I like really fundamentally balk at that. I don't like it. It doesn't fit with um, my admittedly like narrow and recent and good experience with how I experience my identity. And I'm also like temperamentally like if you have opportunity and insult i'd much rather and i have experienced my identity as an opportunity and often when people bring it up they're like oh like they expect you to have trials and i just resist that so much on so many at so many points along the way
2: because it's it doesn't ring true or because the idea that you can apply any blanket narrative to a specific person is bunk
0: yeah, I mean, the the latter for sure, obviously, that's a big preoccupation of mine. But also, in terms of it being true or not, there's a line of thinking that positions your greatest point of solidarity with a group being a common insult, right? Like, there's a it's a common thing. It was common through, to a lesser degree, at the hairpin. It's certainly common in the stuff I get in my inbox at Jezebel, where it's like, This aggression, am I right, ladies? You know, and it's like that is a huge part of the female experience. It's half of it though. Like, there's that's the insult half, the opportunity half is another. Sure, it's true. Like, the insults are true. It's not the only point of solidarity. Mm -hmm. And I guess I personally have set myself up to like just really try to fundamentally remember that that's not the only point at which you share an experience with a group. It's not where things are hard only, it's where things are great, mm-hmm. you know?
2: I actually haven't heard that phrasing before, like what? insult versus opportunity.
0: I mean, it, it's, I, it's just, it was this line about neurons in the T.T. Max yeah.
2: piece. But w- what you mean is there are all of these positive aspects to these various identities and that you're interested, if you're going to orient around any of them, around orienting around those.
0: Yeah, and also, I mean, insult itself is an opportunity, right? I mean, I'm I'm really glad that I'm glad to be a woman, and I'm glad not to be white. I think it's made made me tougher. I have never been able to assume comfort or power. I'm just glad. I, I'm glad that, like, especially as you watch, like, the great white male woke freak-out <laughs> meltdown that's happening right now, I'm glad that it's good to come from below. It feels good. I never expected anything I guess that's what I'm saying like and it's good to not expect anything it was good to graduate into the recession I mean it was also bad I've also made it out very luckily on all these things but I'm also glad I graduated in 2009 and didn't think I could be a writer I'm glad that like being a writer at all feels like a surprise Mm -hmm. um, in a way that maybe it wouldn't have if I was like you know a white guy with the same facility for writing you know like maybe it would have been something that I expected more from the beginning I don't know
2: that's a really interesting idea.
0: Has no one ever said that in here before?
2: I don't think so. I mean, not a, a lot of that, but that idea of insult and opportunity and them being not mutually exclusive, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And um, I'm glad that we went back there because I was, I was feeling kind of dubious about that moment in the first conversation. <laughs> Me
0: too. I don't remember what I said. I think I just like, I think my yeah. head just, you know, <laughs> you know like, my brain started falling out of my ears.
2: Man, come on. <laughs> um
0: my lack of cool responding to it, I'm what I assume was um, probably due to like the downside to identity politics being at the forefront of culture writing and political writing right now. Is the downside is obvious. The upside is that women and non-white people can are in a different place, I think, than if I had started writing five years before I did. And I'm, and it's, I think it's tangible the difference.
2: At some point, do you feel like you need to get out of women's media? Like, at some point, have you like have you sat in that? Space for long enough that you've pushed up against all the walls?
0: <laughs> when, when you said pushed up against all the walls, obviously I thought, never mind. <laughs> um, the vaginal walls. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually not what I meant. I know, I know. I was I was just thinking of, yeah, never mind. I've edited many pieces about vaginal walls is what I'm saying. So maybe I do need to get out. <laughs> um, if you hear
2: walls and just immediately think vaginal but, yeah, walls, it yeah, might be
0: tough. Be, but it's only been three years. I don't know.
2: Sorry, let me ask that question a different way. Yeah. Jezebel Hairpin were founded, you know, several years ago, I think to sort of meet a need. There was like a, a hole in... <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> I blame you for that. Uh I'm going to say this again and then we'll go and then we'll get be done with this. Um I guess what I'm asking is, you know, Jezebel Hairpin came out in an era when it felt like there was a real need for that voice uh to write from that perspective, to be writing for women. And if you feel like the era of identity writing is changing, if the culture of that is changing, I, I guess I wonder what that means for a site like Jezebel, but also what it means for you at a site like Jezebel, like at some point do you feel like you've sort of done what you can do in that realm?
0: We have asked ourselves this question a lot at both The Hairpin and Jezebel. It's like, I wrote about this in the no offense thing. It's like people think that the idea of a women's website is to tell women what to get offended about, and not that there's not plenty, you know, mostly in the policy realm to get offended about, but the model as a discursive norm does feel flat. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure what, like on this podcast, I listen to all the women's ones first. I gravitate naturally towards liking women's writing and women's voices. But the question of what is the purpose of a women's website in 2016 is a, is a real question. And it's one that we're kind of figuring out on like a literal piece by piece, angle by angle story-by-story basis, Um, I've come to no good conclusions. I also, The Hairpin and Jezebel are unique in that they were both founded by young women five to eight years before I got there. So there was no, like, it was a place in which you could really ask that question and answer it differently than the people before you. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not, I don't see myself as, like, being a lifetime women's media person. The great thing, though, is, like, these places where you can still ask the question with no one trying to control how you answer it, I still find that really valuable.
2: I have a related question. This probably fits pretty clearly with what we were talking about in that interview, which was about, like, you sort of resisting the idea of, like, strategery. I know, like, uh, for a fact I know, that you've been offered a lot of jobs in the last, like, six months. I know this to be true. Like, uh, uh-huh. I've seen the emails.
0: VCC? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just VCC'd on every job. Yeah, offer. yeah. No, seriously. I know I know that um, some really interesting stuff has, like, popped up in your email and that you haven't taken any of them. And I want to know why.
0: You know, Jezebel's my first ever full-time job. I want to see it out. I also feel like I – like, I still – there's still something to be learned from this job. The amount of control I have – over like my work and how the site is going, and just in terms of running something and managing something, um, I know that that's pretty unique for somebody at my stage. And also, you know, it's been a year. It's been a big weird year. Like Gawker is going to trial next week. It's in my nature to be loyal, and I think that it's like you said. When do you know when you are going to write about something? It's like I don't know. It just I just have to, and then I do. Mm-hmm. And then I, I assume that everything else that happens forever in terms of work will, will be like that. I'll know that I have to, and then I'll do it.
2: Where does that loyalty come from? Have you always been that way?
0: I think I'm loyal to the idea that you need to see something out as well as you can, like relationships, pieces, ideas.
2: See it out till the end. Yeah. Last question. Yeah. Did you see your acapella career out to the end? <laughs>
0: I can't believe you found this. I did. Find no, that. please don't. We gotta
2: cut this. No, no, no. We're leaving it in. No. It's gonna be the after music. I
0: told, when. okay, I was in a car with Tommy Craggs like over the summer and somebody brought up like unearthing this and he was like, you're fucking fired. Go work at BuzzFeed. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, well, I think uh, if you don't have any further thoughts on your acapella career at the University of Virginia, then um, we should just let you play us out.
0: Oh my God. If you do that, I'll literally we're doing it no wait they're actually good recordings
2: okay you can send me one of those too you play just, a good one Or I solos I know
0: oh my god
2: <laughs> what was your group called
0: the Virginia Bells <laughs>
2: the Virginia Bells it's like
0: Pitch Perfect Pitch Perfect was written um, the writer came to my school and, and not about us but
2: okay you're <laughs> <laughs> Gia Tolentino of That's the Virginia such a Bells own.
0: you just owned me so hard
2: <laughs> thanks very much for coming back thanks for having
0: me for the addendum <laughs>
4: Never loved nobody fully. Always one foot on the ground, and by protecting my heart, true.
2: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, the University of Pittsburgh's own Courtney Harrell. Thanks to her, Jean-Marie Laskus, and everyone at Pit Writers for bringing us back to town. I'm looking forward to the next trip. Thanks also to our sponsors, MailChimp, Squarespace, and HomeChef. Get started cooking restaurant-quality meals at home in under 30 minutes. Go to homechef.com longform to learn more. Thanks most of all to Gia Tolentino for going all the way to Pittsburgh, for coming back to the studio, for engaging with all these questions of mine, and for giving us this recording of her singing with the Virginia Bells, which is really, really good. We'll see you next week.